Now to the panel um, on how the justice system is letting women down. All of these women have had experiences of the justice system in various ways and will tell us about their experiences. So Gail, Gail Hadfield Granger's partner was killed by Greater Manchester Police. She has sought justice by studying law to hold the police accountable and now has her own practice here with Max, Max McNally, mm -hmm. prison law specialist, co-founder of Hadfield Granger McNally Legal Consultants. They practice together. Samantha Azumadu is the founder of Media Diversified. Samantha is a crisis campaigner, radical organizer, writer, publisher, and ethnographer. Zaina, Zaina, I don't have a lot of information about you because you just joined the panel, but please can you let us know your story? Am I starting first? Okay. Um, my name is Zaina Iman. On the 5th and 6th of February, I was detained for in excess of 40 hours by Greater Manchester Police at Pendleton Police Station. During my time with Greater Manchester Police, I was drugged and raped. Um, I would like to start backwards, um, just so people can gather the story. I've never spoken to this amount of people, so I am a bit nervous. Right, so this was my outpatient discharge mark, um, and it says it is highly likely that this, this is drug related, the date rape drug, which led to a sexual assault. Right, sorry. <laughs> Um, I'm just going to list some of the injuries that were reported in my hospital report. Zena said her nipples were painful, like someone had been pulling aggressively at them. She reported that her throat was sore, like someone had grabbed her neck tightly or had sexually assaulted her mouth. She felt her vagina had been sore over the weekend and had rectal and vaginal bleeding. The doctors are aware of this. Zena mentioned being raped by the police, she also mentioned chemsex. Sorry, it's a bit difficult. Right. So on the 13th, I was discharged from the, as an outpatient. On the 11th of February last year, I was discharged as an inpatient. I was brought into the hospital by Greater Manchester Police. Greater Manchester Police told the hospital that they had found me in the state that I was in and they were concerned about me. Prior to arriving at the hospital, I was with Great Manchester Police, like I said, for 40 hours at Pendleton Police Station. Um, prior to arriving at the police station, um, I was transported to Pendleton from my home in Salford. My home from Salford is a seven minute journey. It took the officers an hour and 21 minutes. Prior to GMP's arrival, I had been at home alone. It was locked down, I had no visitors, and this is mentioned in the police report that the last sighting of me in the Greater Manchester area and on using the EMPR system was on the 2nd of February. So the first time I came into contact with Greater Manchester Police was on the 5th of February. Stupidly, um, on the 5th of February, I, like I said, I've not been out for a couple of days had no visitors and I was going through a bit of a bad time so I got drunk, I got intoxicated and I felt really unwell. So I made a call to my friend Richard and Richard is based in Sheffield so he called 999 just to ask for a check on welfare call. He asked for an ambulance for Greater Manchester Police turned up first 
they dispatched two police vans, one police car, four male officers and a female officer for a check on welfare. I refused them entry into my property. I, couldn't under, I didn't understand why the police had turned up and I needed an ambulance. They persisted in a drunken state. And I, I, I kind of sometimes blame myself because I believe this is the point that they broke in. I flashed the officers from inside the property. The so officers were still outside the property. That is the point that my doors went through. And out of fear, and I think I was startled as well, I accidentally knocked the female officer's glasses off her face. Handcuffs went on, and I was put into the back of a van at 2.05 a.m. on the 5th of February. Now, I'd taken cocaine prior to GMP arriving. I remember an officer getting into the vehicle with me and when the vehicle started moving I remember feeling dizzy and I passed out. Um, GMP have since released some footage so out of the 40 and a half well in total there should have been 42 hours worth of footage in total that includes body one footage, vehicle footage, arrival footage, custody footage. Out of 40 hours of custody footage they've released 37 hours. They've released two out of five body one footages they refused to give the vehicle footage. They claimed that I arrived at the custody suite at 2.15. The footage doesn't start till 3.26. They released the custody records in October last year. They released the footage in February. The custody records do not match. The custody records, nothing tallies up. Everything points to GMP. I, I didn't regain my memory up um, till end of March, early April. But I remember when I was discharged from hospital, I couldn't understand what caused the injuries, why I ended up in hospital, why I was still bleeding, why I had markings on my neck, my wrists, my legs. I got fixated with building a timeline. I spoke to everybody that I spoke to on my phone, trying to build a picture. I made subject access requests which are data protection under the Data Protection Act and it, you can make a request and any organisation has up to 30 days to supply you with the information you ask for. So I made a request with the Northwest Ambulance Service because the ambulance service did turn up on the 5th but they arrived an hour after the police had already driven off with me so I wasn't seen by the ambulance service. I made a subject access request for my GP um, with the hospital with St Mary's Sexual Re Assault Referral Centre, everybody sent my subject access request within the days. It has been over 14 months and I am still waiting for the subject access request to be supplied to me. They are withholding the information. At the moment, as the situation stands, I've been in touch with the ICO, Professional Standards, the IOPC, I wrote to Andy Burnham, I wrote to Beverly Hughes, I have I have contacted every organisation I can possibly think of and I'm hitting a brick wall. All I'm asking for is my legal right to be fulfilled. I want the footage because I want to know exactly what these officers did to me whilst I was in custody. And yeah. this is something that did not Gail? Yeah. You clearly have had challenges and are getting somewhere with Greater Manchester Police. Yeah, I just wanted to just touch on Zena's story as well. So when Zena's come to us, we've helped to fight for the subject access requests and the videos. Um, we were shocked that they supplied so much footage. And what Zena was saying is, 
after so long in the police cell, something would happen, she would be attacked or assaulted in some way, sexually, and then she would come back to the room. Now, before Zena actually watched the footage that she'd got, the footage showed that she was in the cell for a, a long period of time, she was coming round, coming sober, like anybody that's taken drugs or knows somebody that's taken drugs, you do come out of it eventually. Mm. Then the footage goes missing, it's missing for about an hour, and Zena's back in the room, naked, bleeding, front and back, um, and she's clearly, clearly not of a state mind, um, like she's been drugged with some kind of chemical drug that makes you sexually active or more se your sexuality to come out. Ketamine and uh, you know, anything like that. But then what happens is then, again, she starts to sober up a little bit, she comes round, another 10, 15 hours later, she goes to the door, she sees somebody at the door, it stops. The footage missing and again for another hour. She comes back in, she's covering herself, she's crying, she's, she, you can see, She's clearly a woman that's been sexually assaulted from her actions. Yeah. Um, and then it happens again later on. Then they section her. So what happens then is when you get sectioned, for example, 10 days, you're not competent to give the right to them to test you and take blood from you and things like that. So anything that might be in the system will be gone by the time you're competent enough to give, give um, allowance for the sexual her. Health centre to do so. When I arrived at the hospital due to the level of drugs that I had, the hospital took me for an ECG, which is a heart scan because I thought it was possible to see me having a heart attack. Now at the point when I arrived at the hospital, I remembered everything and I was trying to speak and tell them what had happened. The only words that I was able to say was chemsex, rape and GMP. Because of this, I was put on a drug-free assessment. Um, and it was the hospital that concluded that I'd been date raped because as, as the date rape drugs had come out of my system, my memories faded with it as well. Um, the hospital were absolutely amazing, but the hospital weren't aware that I'd been with GMP for over 40 hours. At the time, um, and I'd also, sorry, I'd also like to say that they sectioned me roughly at the 20 hour mark, but they still kept me for another 20 hours. And the excuse was that we couldn't protect or maintain her modesty. It was GMP in the first instance that strip searched me. I've got the video of me being strip searched by four to five female officers. I was unconscious, I was handcuffed, and I was left unconscious on a cold floor. Um, there was a male officer present as well. We've got this footage, but GMP insists that the first sighting of me in the South was at 3.26 and this is when the strip search happened and like I said I was un unconscious. But the custody records say that I arrived at the station at 2.15 and I was prancing around at 3.07. This footage for 3.07 is complete, there's no key in the cell, it's been prepared for me to walk into the cell. The level of discrepancy, literally, I was on a half an hour assessment because I was trying to say that I was insane, which wasn't the case, I was on drugs. Um, every half an hour they were writing an entry. If you compare every half an hour entry with the footage that I've got, it doesn't match. It's their custody detention log and their footage that they've disclosed, even though it's not in, in its entirety, none of it matches. Now if I had no visitors two days prior to GMP turning up, and then I spent, if I had the injuries when GMP officers turned up at my house, the officers would have seen it. There was five officers in my mm -hmm. property. Yeah. Um, so clearly I was uninjured. 
Um, I was wearing a white top, skinny jeans, you would have seen the rectal and vaginal bleeding if I had the mm -hmm. injuries. Clearly there wasn't, but as soon as I got into hospital, there was. So where did these injuries come from? They're saying that they viewed the entirety of the footage and they found no wrongdoing, so GMP have investigated themselves mm -hmm. and found no wrongdoing. Of course, yet they were not, <laughs> yet they were not disclosed the footage. So why are they withholding the footage? Because without this footage, because they had me sectioned and because of the section I wasn't deemed in capable of consenting to a forensic medical examination which lost me my forensic window the only evidence i've got is that footage they admit to having it and every organization that i've contacted local mp the mayor gmta ico iopc professional standards nobody's willing to help me get it they just keep doing review after review after review and i know what's going to happen they're going to turn around and say it's got lost Sena, has your has it, has it gone into the press it yeah. hasn't, it no. hasn't. Okay. Um, we've got a few I meetings next week. We've got a few meetings next week. Um, mm. Because for me, the, it, on the 5th and 6th of May, it was 15 months ago. Mm -hmm. And the thing that bugs me the most is knowing that these officers are still going out mm -hmm. on 999 calls. Um, they also so nobody's been suspended, nothing's... No, I know, I can confidently say I know the names of two of the officers and I believe it was the escorting officers, obviously I can't name mm -hmm. them, mm -hmm. um, two of the officers. But in my detention log, what I find very strange is what they do is put a date and a time, a comment section, and they write the officer that's made the comments. Now all the comments that match my memories, the names for the officers have been redacted for some of them haven't. So I do believe from, from the flashbacks that I get and the memories I get, because this is something that, it's the first thing I think about when I wake up, it's the first thing I think yeah. about at night, um, I see police sirens, I see police vehicles, it triggers it. Of course, um, yeah. Flashing blue lights, sirens, anything, you watch TV, there's always a cop shot show on. Um, but to me, knowing that these officers are still working, um, I was looking to regain the memory that I have others might not be. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of women that have been affected by rape are not brave enough or they feel scared to come forward because rape victims aren't believed. But then you throw into the mix that it was police officers that did this to you. It's not something that... No. Yeah. I think one thing that really stands out as well with a lot of the clients that we work with now is yeah. it's not so much that this happened to them or something happened to them, it's that breakdown of the trust because we've all been instilled to trust the police, they'll do the right thing, the state will do the right thing, they've got your best interest. And when, mm. when the police or the state or prisons break that from you, it, shock, it, it shatters your mental state as well because you've lost all faith in the system as well, as well as dealing with what's happened to you. Yes. Now with Zainas as well, we've applied for the footage from outside a corridor to see who's been to a room and things yeah. like that. Mm. They've refused it. We've asked for audio footage, they've refused it, and we are on and on and on. But until there's some kind of closure, this is how the state are leaving women. Yeah. Um, because they don't see that, and I'm not saying it's everybody, but for men, and some men with, with power, and we see it all the time in the news, you know, mm. police officers done for rape, police officers sexual assault, yeah. the prisons have done something. When they see a, a person such as Vic, uh, victim, uh, sorry, <laughs> such as Zayla <laughs> and uh, the other victims, they think 
surely got sexually assaulted. I mean, it's not major. Let's have a look at the drug person or let's have a look at this. Yeah. And it's like it gets brushed under as though it's not important. But it is. Mm. It's so important. And it's still a man's world, the justice system. Um, it really is. Absolutely. Well, I think that, well, well Sarah Everard in that case mm. that has brought about, um, well, such criticism and, and what seems to be a perception that the police needs to, well, the Metropolitan Police in, in London needs to change radically. Yeah. Um, but is it going to happen? You live in London and um, so... Uh, yeah. Um, so, Zaina, I'm like heartbroken by your story, yeah. but I'm also quite energised because I think between the three of you, you are going to get justice. You will. Mm. Mm. I think, I, I'm not surprised you've come across brick walls with all the state yeah, and the, and the, yeah, every, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when it goes to the press, it's going to, it will, it, it will yeah. start rolling. So the reason I've been invited here is because I'm also a journalist. And I did an uh, exclusive two-part series on um, IPPs, which are indeterminate sentences for public uh, protection. And I did that for Open Democracy. Um, I'm just going to read out the first little bit of it. Um, basically, I profiled some prisoners who've been in prison mostly over 10 years. The first one is a guy called Leroy, and he says... The article opens with 17 years I've been in jail on a two-and-a-half-year minimum sentence for a phone robbery where no violence was ever used. My daughter, Latea, 19-year-old, has recently passed away, and my uncle now also. Please ask the media to, ru to run my story. And so uh, what I found is um, in the course of three months, I worked on the story, and, and indeterminate sentences for public protection were brought in by the Labour government, uh, specifically Lord Blunkett, around 2003, 2004. And what we found was a generation of working-class black, Asian, and... Um, and white uh, working class men and women who were put in prison for very minor crimes such as stealing a mobile phone, Leroy, um, other very minor crimes. Uh, to be honest, I don't often ask what crime these people did, it doesn't matter because no. they, you know, they were put in for a certain thing. Mm -hmm. 17 year, years later, they're not in for that, yeah. I'll tell you. What they're in for is the mental abuse and torture yeah. that the prison system yeah. has implemented on them over years and that's documented by psychologists, by their families and so on. Um, but, I mean, we're here talking about women specifically today, so I'll talk about a woman called Charlotte Noakes, who was put in prison around 2008. For what crime? I don't know. I don't care. And she, uh, she, they have something called a tariff, so you get a, uh, not that Lord Blunkett or the judges or the prison service really knew what the IPP sentence was when they implemented it, but basically you get put in for whatever reason and you get a tariff, uh, which is like uh, two and a half years, let's say. Um, and then after that, you're still just kept in until they decide that they can release you after various parole, parole uh, things. So Charlotte had been in, uh, she was supposed to be 18 months. She died in her prison cell seven years after she was supposed to be released. Um, in that time, they decided that she had a personality disorder. They decided this and that. She didn't go in with any of that stuff. Over years, that's what happened. And, you know, in her inquest, her family said she was like, Beautiful, lovely girl who, was, who got into art. She got a place at St. Martin's. I don't know if you know St. Martin's uh, Art School. Uh, very prestigious through her art that she did in prison. And she also um, uh, uh, exhibited stuff as well in another gallery. Uh, but she saw the sentence she was given as a, as a death sentence. And it was in the end. And the last few months, what they were doing is giving her various uh, uh, drugs for her, her disorder. Uh, saying that she's not willing to uh, uh, engage in these in these things that they want her to her treatment, uh, she didn't need treatment when she went in. 
remember, and she was seven years over her sentence when she died in her prison cell. And at the inquest, they say she died from natural causes. She was 38. Absolute nonsense. The state... Okay, so that's one. These are a few people I, um, I uh, profiled. And then I did a second uh, uh, investigation. So I was just going to get political react because it went kind of viral this article you know George Membio was uh, tweeting it saying Guantanamo Bay style prisons in our in our in and in, in England and we didn't even know and all this stuff was coming out and then so my editor just asked me can you go back and just get political reactions to your first story you know get some quotes so I went to Lord Blunkett the originator of this sentence who actually campaigns against it now now he's not got any power um, uh, yeah because it was banned in 2012 for human rights abuse uh, Ken Clark got rid of it what happened in 2012 when the sentence was banned is they didn't um, they didn't retroactively leave, take people out of prison all these people who had been in supposedly supposed to be in for two years who are now in by 15 17 years later were not let out retrospectively if they do get out sometimes on parole they're on a license any little thing happens and they get put back in which is another whole big thing but anyway I went to get political reactions I got some from the Lords Greens Lib Dems all these people all condemning it outright yeah people who campaign for prisons condemning it outright and then um and then through but i'm still talking to the families i'm talking to the ministry of dust this the parole service getting quotes from them blah blah and this pattern emerged and the pattern that happened was we found well i found that uh what was happening is that the prison service or someone nobody's admitting it yet were putting false crimes on these prisoners uh files means like things that they couldn't have done Leroy for instance was it said that he had been uh, committing this crime and that crime in 2003 the guy was in prison in that time his aunt confirmed it and I got the documents yeah everything I did I had to get documents yeah my editor was not letting me publish anything with document without documents and then um, and then talking to another person so there was another guy who 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 they said that he had he had stolen his girlfriend's car and there'd been domestic abuse and this and that in this particular year, 2007, 2006, he had been in prison at that time. He didn't do any of this. So another guy who said uh, um, that, you know, that he'd been a hostage taker and all of this, and they abused prison guards. And but these prisoners are sent, like, Leroy has been in 37 different prisons over, over time. They're all sent everywhere. None of these things were true. So between the Ministry of Justice, the parole board, prison service they're keeping those people in and i call them political prisoners now and so charlotte is one woman who died in prison but there's been four women so far there'll be more and they are so some, there's something called the prison cohort so the type of sentence you get and um so ipps are the highest suicide rate and they are the highest self-harming these people i, I mean trigger warning in real life you know they're gouging their arms uh, you know some of these people yeah horrible things they're doing to themselves because over time they're getting psychosis now they're being kept in for the mental health issues and for the fact that they would get compensation when they get out one person a guy called martin myers uh, a parole person put some nonsense on his file the guy is a, tra a traveller background, he couldn't read and so on. For some reason, which doesn't usually happen, the parole service sent his file to prison to him, knowing that he doesn't read and he'll have to get another prisoner to read it. And so, uh, another prisoner read it. In there, there's some absolute nonsense about he's uh, committed these sexual offences, like bad ones. Absolute nonsense. From that day on, it went around the prison and he started getting beaten up. Finally, he got some lawyers and took the prison service to, uh, to, to court and, he, and, and proved... For one, he didn't do what they were saying. For two, the parole board, uh, parole, parole of, probation officer, sorry, 
who put that on his file, admitted that it was wrong and he shouldn't have done it, and he got £21,000. But what the state didn't do is wipe his, uh, his file clean and, and, and uh, uh, let the prisons know that he hadn't done this and to protect him, because then, that was 2013, he kept getting beaten up still. 2015, beaten up, ended up in hospital. 2017, it's still happening. The man is still in, 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 in prison. He's been moved around. Every time he gets moved around, his uh, lawyers have to tell the police, look, uh, the prison, you know, he didn't do this, can you make sure he's okay and so on, but he's still left there. Just a week ago, the, the, what's his name, the Ministry of Justice, uh, Dominic Raab, has said that he's not going to let these people out. Um, and, that's, and I, for me, I believe it's because they know how much compensation they're going to need to give to these people. And as it refers to women, so uh, I'm working on another investigation at the moment, and this has really uh, uh, opened my mind, and maybe I can talk to Zainab after, but I'm looking at women... What's happening to women in uh, very delicate uh, uh, living circumstances, so precarious living circumstances, you know, renting from this person and that person. And I found every time, I'm not going to go into it too much because I'm still investigating it, but um, I feel that police and the councils in some way work together to, to manage and oppress vulnerable women uh, and they use um, these, well, the mental health holds, what they call... Um, you know, sectioning yeah. to do that. Yeah. And I've found a pattern, and hopefully I'll be able to prove it, but I do believe there is an important uh, need for the press to, 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 to talk about this. And I, I should say, so I did it for Open Democracy, and that's a smaller platform, but I went first to, like, I've written for The Telegraph, they didn't want it, Al Jazeera, New York Times, all these people. And since then, even because the family still keep in touch with me, they yeah. want justice, they want people out. So I contact journalists and ask them, do, you know, can you follow this? I've got all these other documents you could use, you could have an exclusive. And ITV did do something, uh, but they didn't talk about the actual real crimes the state are doing, which yeah. is the fake anyway so you know people don't care about working class white black brown women all men and it's very hard to get that stuff into the press but i think there will be a barrier that breaks at some point and stories like zayn have to come out and you have to and yeah. the, I, i'm, I'm no. ashamed of andy Dur uh, burnham for not getting back to um, you you know what's interesting how you said that they're all interlinked yeah. i always agree with that and um, when I started speaking out and I started contacting numerous organisations and charities, there was only two, and I contacted one, just only two organisations that offered to give me help. One was Women Against Rape, which is a London non-government charity. The second was a northern charity based in Manchester, and they were the Northern Police Monitoring Project. When GMP realised that I was speaking and I was starting to tell people, because I wrote a seven-page letter that I sent to numerous charities detailing my experience from A to Z, they actually had Salford's early interventions team call call me, turn up at my house, trying to open up an assessment into my perceived mental health issues. I'd yeah. like to emphasize, before being drugs and raped during my detainment, I had never accessed mental health service silence me. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is, when I made a self-referral to the Sexual Assault Referral Centre, which is like a rape crisis centre, they, they work with the police. Um, and the police told them that I'd actually been raped on the 2nd of February. But I had already told them that I had no memory of what had happened and the police knew I'd been raped on the 5th of the 6th. The reason they said that I'd been raped on the 2nd was because it would have locked my forensic window and it did. Um, 
part of the budget for the referral centre comes from the policing budget and my ISVA was not above board. Um, she advised me not to challenge GMP's false report on the um, check on welfare and that was the day that I stopped communicating with her um, and that's when they started to try to have resettled again. So it has been a very intimidating progress uh, process and the only thing that I can advise to anybody that has ever, ever been in any kind of situation like this, the best thing you can ever do is to speak, speak to as many people as you can, because if you stay quiet, they will shut you up. Mm -hmm. they have Shorts that I was wearing, and the custody shorts had a 
strong chemical smell on them. When I met Gail and Max in November time to instruct them as my sister, I mentioned these memories to them. Right at the end of the footage, and this is the very final hour that I was shown on the custody footage, them custody shorts were taken off me and bags up, and I was sent out of Pendleton in custody, jogging bottoms. Um, the custody log says that I was um, released on bail at, um, I think it was 7.47pm and an escorting vehicle had arrived and I was taken to hospital at 8pm on the 6th. Um, but the hospital records show that I was actually admitted an hour earlier. So literally, they've lied so much to cover their tracks, but they've tripped up on everything, nothing matches. And despite me having enough evidence to prove that they've raped me and drugged me, no one's willing to, to hold them accountable. Like, the laws do not apply to them. And that's amazing because 15 months since this has happened, they should not be serving officers. Pendleton Police Station is opposite a university. There's vulnerable women that go out by the Saturday night being taken in. How many people would remember what has happened to them after being debated? I was in denial for the first two months. I actually convinced myself that I had a nervous breakdown. That you was not the case. It's, it's gaslighting by the state yeah. and it's yeah. horrific. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? The hospital were amazing. Um, I actually made a request to speak to my um, consultant because yeah. there were certain things that I'd said to them and I wanted clarity on them. When they found out that I was pursuing Greater Manchester Police, they refused to meet with me. So the whole, they're all interlinked. Mm. Everybody knows somebody mm. in there and they silenced you. and. I no longer live in Salford. My home is in Salford. I am paying a mortgage on a house that I do not live in. I've moved to Sheffield because I yeah. do not feel safe living mm -hmm. in my own home. Who? I used to live by myself. It's taken away a lot of my independence. I can't, I don't like going no, out alone and whatnot. But yeah, I'll show up now. You date the woman police officer who was there at the she beginning. Was which, which car was she in or van? Uh, well, basically, this is the interesting bit. The, the female officer arrested me put, and a male officer put the handcuffs on me. But the two officers that drove me to Pendleton were the two male officers. And what's even more interesting is there was one officer in particular. He actually rang me and he told me he was a PC. Turns out he was actually a police sergeant, not a police constable. Um, and he was also on shift both days that I was at Pendleton. So I do believe I know the names of two of the officers and it was the two officers that escorted me from my home to Pendleton. Because being a female and in the state that I was in, first of all, I should never have been taken to custody. I should have probably been taken straight to hospital. Mm -hmm. um, but I wasn't. I was taken to police station or wherever I went for the hour prior. But why did two male officers drive me? Because the PS that was dispatched, he'd only been dispatched to um, put in the put through the barrel to the door um, to gain access into the property. So there was no reason for him to drive me. He'd only been dispatched to break entry. Like, yeah. And he was on just four days. And he was the, the two escorting officers were two officers that rang me and they rang me from the GMP's 0161 number. I've made subject access requests for these calls and GMP will not release their calls because one of the calls was very interesting. We've also got, um, oh, sorry, yeah. just before she was, when, before you got taken to the police station, one of the officers actually sat there and asked her if she's had anal sex recently. Right, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I was asking. Inappropriate, that's, yeah. Do you know, and then you think about what happened. Yeah. So they can try and put it down to something else. 
but the way that the state that Zaina was in when she got arrested as me and Mag's know, yeah. she should have been taken straight to the hospital. Yeah. She should not have been detained. Yeah. Then there's level one, two, three and four, which is the observations when somebody goes to the police station. So if somebody's absolutely fine and they go in, you be level one, you get checked every hour or so, and after six hours, you've you know, got to have a, a full check. Yeah. Level four, Zaina was at. Uh, she was unconscious when she, they put her into the cell. She had five officers, one holding her head down with force, one holding her legs we down with force. For that, by the one with her elbow in her back. Bearing in mind, this is an unconscious girl on the floor, handcuffed behind her back. She's flopping, she, her body's floppy and everything. They've cut her clothes off, including the knickers. Don't ask me why. But the, the, there was so tissue in between my legs as well. And there was, yeah, and there was tissue between her legs and she's pulled out. When she's come around, she's like, she's like what, what, what's happened? Do you know, and, yeah. But for the officers, completely disproportionate of how they even handled her before the attack started to happen. Yeah. Do you know, they should have had her on full 24-hour observation. Mm. She should have had a mental health check, a nurse check and everything. She was failed completely by the state, by the police. Even just according to pace codes, which is your police and criminal We've evidence act codes. We've watched the, the, the video of Justice Big Search, the way that they manhandled it, me. It must have been they, so She was carried into the cell, weren't Yeah, I had to watch that. I have no memory. I know, I was going to say, to it must that. be yeah. absolutely traumatising. Yeah. the entire footage myself. Were, who, um, were you with someone when you watched it? No, I watched it by myself. This is one thing as well, which is why we're wanting to speak, because what she's yeah. done on her case is not what 99.9% of other people would do. Mm-hmm. She's had to sit and she's had to watch yeah. this traumatic event. She's had to relive every single minute. She's had to read and write and letters. She should have been protected. There should be people um, investigating yeah. what happened at the police station. When we wrote to Andy Byrne and Beverly Hughes, what they actually mm. said was, um, well, we've asked GMP, um, and they've watched the footage. The officers at the police station have watched the footage, and they said they've done nothing wrong. So why have they done the footage? So I wrote back and we said, have you actually watched the footage, yeah. though, or have you taken no word? Radio silence. Yeah, but they've, we've actually got it in writing that they have the entire footage, and they've also got it in writing that they, they view the footage and nothing's happened, but they're not disclosing all the footage. So my question is, why we not disclose the footage, which it should yeah. have been disclosed within 30 days, so I made this request February 24th, 2021, we're in May now, and I'm still waiting for this subject access request. If you, It's my legal right, but no one's enforcing that. The ICO hold the police accountable for bre- data breaches, and they're not doing that. And it's a catch-22. I'm just going to point at you for the sake of the <laughs> <laughs> See if this gentleman committed the crime and he's got the footage, and I'm asking him to provide me with the footage that proves that he raped me. He's not going to give it. Somebody mm-hmm. has to make them give it. But it's like everybody that we're having to ask is mm. friends with GMP, and I'm in the yeah. biggest catch-22. But my, like I said, this isn't about money for me. This is more about raising awareness because I don't want this happening to any other female or male um, mm-hmm. child, children going to custody. Yeah. Because the level of cover-up that was involved and the amount of people and manpower used to try to shut me up, this wasn't the first time it's happened. I'm sorry, I, I don't believe this is the first time. I'm speaking to, uh, listen to what you're saying, it's clearly obvious. Definitely. I, I do believe that I've been very, very lucky because some of the memories that I've got had, and I, 
there's one part that I want to emphasize to people that I forgot to mention. At the 37 hour mark, so this was roughly about 4 p.m. on the Saturday, Richard, my friend Philman, um, and my friend Terry managed to locate me at Pendleton. The reason it took them that long was because nobody was giving them information about my whereabouts because they weren't my next of kin. They've tracked me down at Pendleton, they've kicked off saying, where is she? We, we, we don't know if she's okay, what's happening? And they go, she's completely fine, everything's okay. Within three hours, I was put in a psychiatric unit. Had these two men not have turned up, I don't think I would have made it out of Pendleton. Mm. Is That's there anything that any of us can I do to, to help? I mean, Mags, we haven't heard from you. The reason why I wasn't coming in is Sorry. I think it's really important. Yeah, because this, me too. this is just this is just one crime. Yeah, in our office, we have repulsive crimes just like this that nobody's dealing with. All female. Now I'll tell you a little bit about me, so you know who you're speaking to. I'm Mike. I'm one of the directors, along with Gail of Hatfield Granger and Macmillan Legal Consultant. I worked in law by accident. Yeah. I really didn't want to go down that route. I wanted to be. God forbid it didn't come to fruition. I wanted to be a criminologist for Greater Manchester Police, and, and that was the. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I obviously wasn't thinking straight, straight at that time. So, uh, while studying to be a criminologist, they were saying, you know, we need to go for interviews, and a legal position came up. I should I go for it? I've got no legal knowledge, but I'll go for it. Unfortunately, I got the job. Um, and I didn't want the job. So I still had an exam in university, and I thought, I spoke to my lecturer, I said, I don't want it. He said, take it. It's a good opportunity. You've not finished uni yet. So I took it. I thought, I'll have a little look at it. I'm working for Great Manchester Police, that's what I'm doing. I ended up staying there, and I ended up going on to study law. And I ended up staying there for up to 15 years. Not just for one cup phone, a lot around the Greater Manchester area. Um, I was one of the ones that started um, a prison law business for the firm, which was massive, one of the biggest in the UK. And during, during doing that, I, I was a prison law lawyer in all the prisons across the UK, male prisons and female prisons. My interest lay particularly with females. I'm some, of the, some of the ladies, and I'm glad what you said, Sam, I don't care what they're in for. We've all got a line, regardless of what we've done in life, everyone should be treated under the human rights act. Sadly, females in prison are not. Unfortunately, that's the case. We have represented lots of them. We've represented women that have been made by officers and were put down the block because we were making allegations that we'd been raped. I used to do the college adjudications in prison. Rather than bringing them to courts, they bring people in to represent them, they bring the judge in and it all takes place in court. I've represented women that's been raped by officers and they've, they've managed to walk through all these officers. I've represented <coughs> women who've been impregnated by officers in the prison, not out of choice, forced upon them, and nothing gets done until we started looking at our prison law business and we felt that it needed to up a level. 
although we could represent them, I felt that we needed to do more. So then we, I became part of basically taking action against most of the um, prisons in the UK, um, judicially reviewing a lot in the female prisons, winning a lot of cases as a, with a team, not just myself, as a team. Um, I then felt, because I was working regulated under the SRA, unfortunately, you've, there's only a certain level you can go to without becoming outside the guidelines. I met Gail 10 years ago, still working in law, discussing things. We've got a little business together, nothing to do with law. And we always talked about the possibility of maybe doing a bit of law stuff together. She was studying law. Because Great Manchester Police still were open. So she wanted to understand it more. So she goes off to university and starts to study. She studied for 10 years. So we decided that we would start a business, but not a business like the typical solicitor's firms that you see everywhere in the UK. That where they look at the clients from a monetary point of view, because that, that's the bit that I always felt uncomfortable with. They were about money, mm -hmm. and it wasn't about the person. Mm -hmm. So I left, and that we started this, this business up. <coughs> this business represents people, unfortunately, who've been subjected through the state to what Zane has been subjected to. We have men, male, female, young, old. So we make a noise, and most of the prison, sorry, most of the people in the UK don't like us. <laughs> Understand. And that's, that's fine, that's fine, well, that's fine, because I feel that what we're doing is working. We do spend a lot of time taking action. Um, we have big teams of solicitors, because we have to take it, it has to go under an SRA regulation. We do the work on it, but it has to be under an SRA regulated body. So we bring them in. Zaina's case is going to be big. It is going to be all over the press, and she is going to get justice. Yeah. Unfortunately, in cases like this, <coughs> if she went to a, a, a solicitor's firm that doesn't do work the way we do, they wouldn't take the case on her. Mm. And put in the yeah. yeah. How and did you find each other? Mm. Um, I actually, because I was getting turned back, turned down by so many people, charities, even non-government charities. As soon as I mentioned, everybody wanted to help, as soon as I mentioned that perpetrators were Great Manchester Police, Radio Silence, this is nurses, doctors, brief crisis centres, domestic violence organisations, organisations that deal with sexual assault, nobody wanted to know. Um, I joined Twitter. I don't know why. I wanted to just raise awareness. I thought, you know what, if I can't get justice, I'm just going to talk to as many people. Mm -hmm. Even if people think I'm lying, if they know a female that ends up in custody, they can remember the crap that I was saying on Twitter. Yeah. Started it. And the first person that got in touch with me, I can't mention his name out of discretion um, because he doesn't want to be even. It's an ex high ranking GMP officer who Gail and Max have met as well. Um, and he was a godsend. Through him, I met my lovely friend Sandra. Um, and Sandra has been an absolute godsend. She's pursuing GMP as well. Um, 
and through her I started speaking and I found I knew about the Granger story and the Granger story and I thought, do you know what? What better way to fight the police by somebody who's fought the police themselves? So I just threw, I just sent them a letter and I sent this letter to numerous places, numerous organisations, and like I said, everybody ignores me. Man's fine. And yeah, it went from there. But I can honestly say the amount of work that these women have done, it's not been about money. Um, oh, trust me, it's not about money. It hasn't. Because even, like, I only returned back to work last week after all this happened. Um, I wasn't in a position to financially afford the hourly rates every solicitor was asking. Um, and I'm not entitled to legal aid because I'm a homeowner. So realistically, on paper, the chances of me getting justice was zero until I met you. That's who they, they, they prey upon, though. Yeah. They prey upon people they that think will background. not get justice. Well, the thing is, they designed yeah. design that way. They knew my background. Yeah. I first came to Greater Manchester Police's attention because I was a domestic violence. Um, and I was put under the police protection um, unit. So I, there was a threat to life um, when I moved to Manchester. So I was a vulnerable person. They knew a lot about my background because I'd access different types of support services. They knew that I was living alone because they'd removed somebody from my property the previous year. My life is literally on GMP's database. So when I was being asked questions by one particular officer and he asked the officer that asked me if I had had anal sex before, he was asking me questions, do you live alone, blah, blah, blah. And he kept going back and forth. It was like everything he was asking me, he was going back and checking up on this, this, thing. My whole life was there. And I just think the reason I was talking, nothing to do with race or anything. I was just the perfect target. Mm, yeah. I had no family back in. I lived alone, come from a vulnerable background. If I disappeared, nobody would come and look. Can I ask you if Sheffield Police, I think you said Sheffield, have been in touch with you? Well, this is the thing. I was given, um, by speaking out, the odd person has come and said, try this, try that, try this. I uh, moved to Sheffield when I got my memory back when GMP tried to have me section to shut me up. Um, and I went to report Great Manchester Police Officers to South Yorkshire Police. They didn't get back to me for two weeks. They came to my house, took a two-hour statement, two female officers. Mm. Two female officers, and when I showed them stuff, um, they believed everything I said. I hadn't heard from them, so I thought, you know what, I'll give them a nudge and see what's happened. Oh, um, because it didn't happen under our other policy, oh. we can't <laughs> deal with it because they were going out of time figures, so we've passed your complaint back on to GMP. Oh. Yeah. So every avenue yeah. that I'm using goes back to That's the But have, have Sheffield hassled you in any way? So uh, South, I, South Yorkshire? Prior to, prior to the assault in Manchester, I used to, I've mentioned this to Gail, I used to get stopped by the police a lot, and Gail and Max also know that um, in 2014, um, I was harassed by a, an officer from West Yorkshire Police, which resulted in Greater Manchester Police raising my property. They took 16 officers to my one bedroom um, flat to find nothing had happened. 
Um, I used to get stopped on a regular basis, but I put that down to hiring vehicles because I've got a thing about German cars, so I thought maybe that's the reason they had to stop me. I had no clue, but um, since I met Gail and I told him about, uh, yeah, the officer got sacked for gross misconduct. We've read the text messages. Text messages. We're standing outside the house. Let me in, let me in. Just for that. We think this bitch is. She knocked him back nice now, yeah, slightly, because I'm scared. Outside the house. Yeah. Um, so we believe that the reason I was posted as well was because because of that. Um, because I had previously had an officer stand, so um, it was um, payback. It, it was well known. Um, they got me eventually. Okay, yeah. so can I? We need to wrap it up. Yeah, but like I'll be really in, quick. in your opinions. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Do I, I just no, want to say, what can we do? Is there anything? Just raise awareness. Yeah, yeah. it's raising awareness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. things. Tell them. Just want to mention the brain. Sorry, what was that? Um, I said I'm on to it. So if anybody yeah. wants um, the seven-page letter that I wrote, yeah. I'm happy to send the letter out, and you can see what happened from A to Z. Because for me, I've, I've, I'm not bothered about my anonymity. It's gone past that stage. Mm. I, I, to me, I lost everything that night. Um, so for me, if I can warn as many people, the people that are here, that you can tell your mothers, your fathers, sisters, your friends. The more people that women, women, women need to know. Women need yeah. to know this. I even put yeah. urgently. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is because it's getting covered up. Yeah. Why have you not gone to the press already? We've got meetings on next week. Because, um, from a legal point of view, you can't. If she wasn't with us, she could go straight to them. But because we're preparing a case, yeah, then got to be careful. Yeah, yeah. something she could do, she she could do, could jeopardise. The preparation of the case. Don't worry. Once the case is out there, you'll see you'll see this everywhere. But the thing is, if we allow her to do that now, then the jeopardy to her would be irreparable. So it will be it will be in the papers, and you will all see it. Same with the lady Sandra at the back behind you. You'll see her. You'll see her case in the papers as well. So a lot of people go. Go. We have press press officers that that just work for us. Yeah. So we get, they're all dying, they're like, please, please. <laughs> but I don't want to do anything that jeopardises the case because we have to get the justice. Mm. And not only that, we wanted to save Sam, uh, not Sam, I'm sorry, saying that for the view. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well I'm just thank you so much for coming and, and and I'm sorry, well, this, 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 this is going to be a podcast, so um, the view are going to put yeah. it out and so share it as well. The View is the magazine that um, we have a, a small marketplace and there's loads of information there. I think we're running out of time, so yeah. if you go and speak to I think I would say, yeah, I'd like to talk yeah. about the Grange case. Oh, yeah, just no. ever so quickly. So you've heard it mentioned just a couple of times. Um, similar to Mike's, I have no interest in. I had no interest in law. I've been a machinist. I've been a mechanic. I've worked in bars. I've worked in clubs. I'm a qualified painter and decorator. I do not care about the law, or at least I didn't. Um, as growing up, I've been through adverse childhood experiences. Um, I've been homeless. I've been with older men from the age of 14, my boyfriend was 22. From the age of 16, my boyfriend was 30. At the age of 15, my boyfriend was 28. Um, each one of them thought it was okay to beat up a girl. I didn't think anything of it because it had always happened. Then I stayed with my son's dad. Um, for six years, 
the day that I found out I was pregnant, I didn't touch another drug because before this, boyfriends who are a bit older think it's okay to give a young girl a lot older. Boyfriends who are a lot older, yeah. it's okay, just take this, just take this. And you think, well, actually, you're letting me sleep in your house, you're letting me sleep in your bed, better do it. Um, so I had a colourful childhood, I'll put it that way. Um, so, like I say, each one of these boy boyfriends were always a bit handsy. Um, thought it was okay to give the occasional slap, punch, broken rib, broken nose. And then I met Anthony Granger, who was not like that. So I think you should put his name in Google. Yeah, you're ready yeah. To finish now, yeah. Oh, no, no, sorry. Oh, yeah. I, 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 yeah. Um, because it was uh, the, 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 the panel changed all yeah. of a sudden, yeah. so oh, I wasn't. Yeah. And it ended up being very. But yeah. How much more time do we have? I mean, I'd love to hear the end of I that. would yeah. as well. <laughs> if we have to wrap up, I mean, yeah. it's absolutely no, fine. No, no, no. It's so uh, because, because you put our name in Google, you'll find out everything. Um, look, so obviously, yeah. Yeah, no, sorry. So at the age of okay. twenty, yeah, let's go. Okay, I'll quickly. At the age of twenty-six, I found myself pregnant to somebody else's husband. Um, who obviously was going to leave her tomorrow, yeah. and then tomorrow. We all got arrested and I was looking at 10 years in prison. Um, I was in the police cells, pregnant. Doing nothing, am I? Uh? Yeah, by doing nothing, with my beautiful daughter who's here, who's 13 now. Um, and while I was at the police station, the police officer came up to me and he said, you do know if your boyfriend just goes guilty, you'll walk free. Um, and I said, well, I don't want him to go guilty because it's nothing to do with me. You know, I'll fight my own case, thank you. And what he did then was pass me his phone and say, well, when he gets 20 years, give us a call. And when you drop that kid, I'll sort you out. So I thought, I'm definitely winning this case. <laughs> so I started studying law. Not studying law, but started looking into the law. Fought my case. I was on trial. Five trials, four different juries, two and a half years. It was one of the biggest drug sagas that happened in Greater Manchester. We all got not guilty. And I got not guilty. Yeah. But by this time, I had to work. I had to be in court five days a week. I had to be a mum to a newborn child and a nine-year-old. Um, and I really got this this feeling against Great Manchester Police because it set us up. Yeah. And as we were walking out, I was on trial with Anthony Granger, who at the time wasn't my boyfriend. Mm. We got together during the trial whilst I was pregnant with my daughter. He knocked, police officer knocked into him and went, don't think this is over yet, you prick. Less than a year later, he was shot dead by Greater Manchester Police. Um, so I didn't know what to do. First thing you do, I thought, right, well, I'm going to all these meetings, these inque uh, these IOPC meetings. I um, didn't have a clue what they were saying. There was all acronyms and, well, part of the CTFSO and IOPC and CPS. And I thought, okay, well. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. So I went to college. So I studied psychology, social policy, politics and everything, just to get me into university, because in case you haven't noticed, I'm a mature student. <laughs> so got into university, studied law and criminology. Um, during this time, five years down the line, we still not had any, anything done. The police officer actually got promoted in the meantime and shot him. No. On the night that Anthony was out, he was sat in a parked car with his friends. Yeah. Admittedly, it was a stolen car, but not because it weren't. But they've never proven to the point that they knew Anthony was in a stolen car because they let him drive around in it for three months and they also watched him pay cash for it. Yeah. But they never investigated that. They, um, it, it went it's all online, isn't it? Yeah, it is all online. Um, so then I 
Um, I certainly meet other people that have been affected by the state, so big names like Janet Alder, you know. I watched a video of you with um, a, a, um, a, a guy who witnessed Andre Mora, Andre Mora, which is another one of that. Yeah. That's Andre Mora case. That's one of ours. Yeah. And basically, what happens is when somebody is killed by the state, which is what I specialise in, it's often a man. When you do studies, it's very, very rarely a woman. And mm. um, all of it does happen. So then, what's left behind? A mother, a wife, somebody with children. You've then got to teach your child that the police aren't bad and if anything ever happens, go to the police and make sure everything's all right. Well, really, you're sitting there thinking, don't trust the police, but you can't instill that into your children. You've got to work to make the money because you don't get funding for inquests when somebody's been killed by the police. You don't get any help, you don't get any support. I was studying, I was how working two Janet jobs. Been, how long has Janet been fighting now? How oh, many years? 20-odd years. Um, so whilst I was doing that, I was obviously working, studying, and then I, we got a landmark decision on our case. So that night when he was sat there, when 16 armed officers, none of them were in a police badge, none of them in a police car, they all had a machine gun with 30 rounds of ammunition, a handgun with 30 rounds of ammunition, a shotgun, a t two tasers, two CS gas carbines, all of them. And they pulled up into the car park that night and they shot him within under three seconds. Oh. Yeah. I didn't get told till the day after. I was at home making tea for him. Uh, they didn't even bother coming telling me. I actually had to Google it when someone told me. Um, so you can imagine it's very difficult for people who have lost somebody by the state, by the state, by the police, by prisons, because it's often men. Mm. And women then have to child, child raise, yeah. work and do everything and there is no funding, no help or anything. Cut long story short, we got the landmark decision. Um, Aunt Greater Manchester Police were unlawfully killed Anthony Granger and it says on the report Great Anthony Granger was killed, uh, Greater Manchester to blame for the litany of failures, catastrophic, catastrophic failures. failures and everything. Went to Andy Burnham, he promised he'd help. Yeah. Never heard of him since, and now he's blocked there. No. Right. <laughs> yeah. Really? But we do, um, we do pester him on a regular basis. He was invited to come. Uh, I was yeah. hoping he was going to come. Yeah. <laughs> As you can imagine. It's because her name's on it. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I've also, after this, I've been stalked because I get quite a few strange people. I ring the police. Yeah. They've never been yeah. out. I've been stalked with people putting pictures of me online and threatening me and threatening our business. For example, November, police still haven't been out. I got verbal, two men came into my house while I was at home with my children. I reported it a year and a half later. It's still not been to take a statement. So when we say the police are a bit of a cult, and they all work together with Ministry of Justice. When I was doing my investigations, I was disrupted in all sorts yeah, of different yeah, ways. Yeah. I'll tell you when we're off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 